And welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada, and the NBA season is almost here. And that means we need to preview one of the two teams that will really dominate this year's storylines, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Defending champion Cleveland Cavaliers. Still a little weird to me, although the Twitter memes certainly remind me of that. To help us preview the Cavs, we've got Chris Manning. He's an editor at Fear the Sword, our Cavaliers site. He also runs the Locked on Cavaliers podcast. And we talk about how improbable that win was last year, what it meant to Cleveland, what he was doing when the Cavs won, when he had hope after the 3-1 deficit. But we also talk about some of the summer moves and what can we expect from a team that really has not that much to play for until the finals. How are they going to keep themselves motivated? What can LeBron James do for an encore after that incredible finals? What about Kyrie Irving? Is Kevin Love going to continue to fit in? We'll find all of that on this show. But before you do that, Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at limited underscore upside as well. Leave us a review, whether it's an iTunes review. It helps us get up in the rankings, and it lets us know what you like and what you don't like. We hope you like this series, uh, looking at every single team with our team bloggers, but we also have a season to cover, and so we'd love to know some ideas you have for that. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter, uh, follow me on Twitter, and send us questions you want answered on the show. They help dictate the show's structure you can do that by tweeting me at mike prada sbn or by emailing me at mike prada at sbnation.com then we'll be back from his honeymoon next week but until then we got the 29th of 30 team previews the cleveland cavaliers with chris manning this is the limited upside podcast Okay, the Cleveland Cavaliers, Chris Manning from Fear the Sword. And Chris, it's still weird to me that the Cavs won the title, although I do get reminded every day on Twitter from all the memes about 3-1 leads and all that. But I got to ask you an honest question. When this was a 3-1 series, before Draymond Green got suspended, did you have any hope left? So it's funny because I was actually, so I was in Norway for the first part of the finals. I was, you know, in on a trip with my dad. Um, and so I had been watching the games when I woke up the next day because of the time difference. And when they were down through one, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is going to be over by the time I get home. Like, I didn't expect to get home and have them still have a chance to win. I got home for game six and game seven. I thought they were done. Um, I just thought even if they won with Draymond out, even if LeBron took it to another level, which he ended up doing, I just couldn't see them beating the Warriors three times in a row and doing it the way they did in game seven. And it's even nuttier. They were down at halftime of game seven, I think by like 10 points or something. Like it wasn't a particularly close first half, and they came all the way back, and everything just broke right. Um, and it, I don't think it's actually going to sink in until next Tuesday when they get their ring ceremonies and when they get the ring and the banner goes up and it actually sets in. I, I don't even think it's going to feel real until then. Yeah, I don't think I really believe that they could win until after Kevin Love stopped Steph Curry the second time, you know, with like 25 seconds left. Throughout that entire game, even when LeBron blocked Iguodala, even when Kyrie made that three, you know, and, and just to be totally upfront with the listeners, like you're just thinking as a as an editor, you're thinking the entire season is building up to the Warriors winning, and so it just kind of makes sense with how the arc of the season has gone, and you kind of have this tunnel vision where you're only thinking about like this one outcome and that affects a little bit of how you prepare for the coverage. So it almost never really occurred even to me until the very end that like, wow, Cleveland could really do this. And that's probably shortchanging the Cavs quite a bit. And I, I feel like I should be totally upfront about that, but it still feels unbelievable now. I don't think you're wrong. Um, I think for me as someone who I tried, I try to be a little bit less, invested because I think it, I think it does help to at least think about detach yourself a little bit I didn't think they were going to get there um, I thought making the finals was a pretty realistic in the likeliest scenario and if they lost they lost because the Warriors do present so many matchups problems for them uh, you know Kevin Love the fact that Kevin Love defended Curry even if Curry was hurt and he did it twice is just maybe the most miraculous thing I have seen Kevin Love do in the two years he's been in Cleveland 
Like, I, I just can't wrap my mind around the fact that he, he who is not the most fleet of a guy, who is not a good defender, stayed in front of Curry, and Curry settled for kind of a bad shot. It's, it's, it's crazy. Everything about that game, LeBron's block, Kyrie's three over Curry, um, just everything that broke right, and then winning in Oracle in a game seven, it's, it's bonkers. I didn't expect it. I think Cavs fans, I think a lot of them did. A lot of us did. Um, and I think a lot of people I work with, if you're the sword, did. But um, I, I don't think it actually set in until maybe the summer, until the, the parade. It's not going to fully set in for me until next week. Um, and, I, and I think it changed everyone's kind of mindset of what is possible with the semen for the city. I think we've seen that. Well, certainly for the city, as the uh, the Indians are going to try to make it two for two for uh, a long, tortured city. I mean, it's it's funny how these things turn around so fast. I remember when Boston couldn't win a championship at all, and then suddenly they came in waves. Maybe that's happening for Cleveland. Let's let's ask a slightly different question then. When was the point where you at least felt like there was a chance, a good chance? Was it after Draymond's suspension? Was it after Game 6? Was it not even until the final few minutes of Game 7? When did you kind of feel like you know, maybe this could really happen and start to imagine what it might look like. Kyrie's shot over Curry for me that late. was the moment. It, I mean, for, I was I was catching up on those games. So I, when, when Draymond got suspended, I was just about to come back to the country. Um, and I was playing back, and that game just felt so tight. I remember at halftime, I'm writing the recap for this game. And I'm taking notes, and I'm following the game, obviously, closely. And they're down at halftime, and I'm like, okay, this is this is a pretty big lead in a game seven. I know they have LeBron, and I know they can they can score, but that's a big lead. That's against a team that good, um, and it just was so close in the end. And it just I think the everything that has happened as a Cleveland sports fan, my whole life, and I'm only 23, and it's not even that long. It's just things usually break wrong in the weird way. Like things just go wrong, and then Kyrie hits that shot. Then I'm like, oh, this legitimately could be a thing. Like Kyrie hitting that shot at that moment, and then everything else that transpired. It felt real, and then it doesn't even like hit you really, and how crazy it was until LeBron hit that free throw, and it's it's four. They can't really do anything about that, and it's it for me. It was that late because I just couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that this was actually going to transpire, and it seemed like a possibility with a block and everything else that happened. But when that shot goes in, when LeBron hits that free throw, and all those things just break right, that's when I think all of it aligns perfectly, and you think, oh man, this actually is going to be a thing. The Cavs are going to win the freaking title and beat a team that I think no one really, most people didn't expect them to beat. What'd you do after they did it? Do you remember? Like, do you remember what your initial reaction was? Yeah, I was sitting on the couch, uh, and my dad was on the other couch, and my dad and I both jumped up and kind of were like, holy crap, this happened. And we're just, like, gave my dad a hug, like, freaked out. I, I was texting people that were downtown, uh, people that were, like, celebrating in the city. I was getting Snapchat videos of my friends uh, at bars, just, like, bartenders passing out shots, and then just, like, the whole city just going crazy. Uh, and I just, I sat there for about 10 minutes. Like I knew I had to get a recap. David Zavok, our manager and I were hitting messages in G chat, like saying, just saying, holy crap, deciding how we're going to get everything up. And you schedule a couple of posts and, you know, try to be functional bloggers for about 10 minutes. And it, then I was awake until like two, three morning that night, just kind of like still excited and still just kind of in awe. And I couldn't watch game seven for about a month because I just needed to like get away from it. And then I watched it again and I had almost the same feelings all over again. I don't know what I would do if the Wizards won the title and I was responsible for, you know, cover coverage that night. Uh, and it must be even more exponentially so for a Cleveland sports fan. So that's really interesting to see. I, the one thing that sort of drove home through that title run that I, I'm curious about is the Cavs during the regular season kind of slogged to 57 wins. I think that's a fair way of putting it. They had all the drama, of course, with David Blatt and then LeBron's tweets and whatever. You know, it was very obvious that something, it didn't feel like they were having all that much fun. They were winning through their talent. They weren't coming together. And then the playoffs happened and it all fell into place. What do you think was the key to that happening? Why did it, why did it kind of fall into place at exactly the right moment? I think there's I think there's a, a lot to this. Uh, I think for one, I do think this is a team that really was waiting for the postseason in some ways. I mean, I think you just look at the difference in regular season LeBron and then finals LeBron. That's a whole different player. That's a whole other level of player. Um, like I think you go into the finals. I think a lot of people, myself included, are wondering, okay, is this firmly Curry status now? After the finals, I firmly think LeBron's still the best guy in the world. Uh, I think Tyron Lue, as much as David Blatt, you know, maybe 
X's and O's maybe has Embiid in some ways in terms of overall scheme. We never saw it with the Cavs. Tyloo connected with the team in a way that I don't think Vlad ever could. Um, they bought in. And I think something really sneaky that happened with this is Channing Fry when he comes to Cleveland, and then Dave McMenamin, I think, wrote the story on this. That team, the locker room, was separated in the clicks. Uh, not everyone was talking. Not everyone was hanging out. Channing Fry didn't know any better because he was new to the situation. So he just texted everybody and said, we're getting dinner. And they started to bond and they started to gel in a way they hadn't before. Um, and, I, and I think LeBron just sort of actually embracing that group and at least seeming like he did and, and them coming together as a group, I think, mattered. Because one of the things with the Warriors, they have all that personnel. And I know there's some stuff out there with Draymond right now, but that was a group that really believed in each other and had each other's back and seemed cohesive. The Cavs were the most dramatic team in the league. <laughs> yes. like, and I, I, and I, I think that's putting it almost lightly because it seemed like every day I'd be on TweetDeck and I'd see something that I had to get up because LeBron Instagrammed like a subtweet or like an Instagram just like someone or subtweeted someone. And just it was like like this again. It, it's like deflating almost. And that goes away in the postseason when they seem to just kind of relax, start to trust one another. I mean, you, you think about the Toronto series. They lose those two games back-to-back. It's 2-2. I think other teams, and maybe them a year ago, would have freaked out a little bit. And they're like, no, we're fine. And I think just the trust in each other and Lou being the guy there that they could depend on, because he can call LeBron out. He can call Kyrie out. And I don't think Blatt ever had the ability to do that because I don't think he necessarily had the respect of everybody. Yeah, those are all really important factors. I think it's great that you mentioned the Channing Fry thing, and it did feel like the team was way more together because, like you said, I mean, it was just a little silly, uh, some of the stuff that was going on beforehand. And with LeBron, he's always been the kind of player, I think, that loves to have that group dynamic. He wants to feel really close to his teammates. So He's had that since high school. I mean, yeah. if you think about him in high school, he grew up with uh, guys that he – was playing with at a YMCA and then played for that. The guy who coached him at the YMCA, Keith Dambrot, went to high school with them. Maverick Carter, who was, uh, I think, a junior or a senior when he was started at St. Vincent St. Mary, is now like his business manager and his agent. And he's been with that guy his whole life. He, he thrives on having people that he trusts around him and having like friends around him. It's it, more than I think maybe any other player we've come across. Yeah, and it must have been eating him up that the team wasn't bonding. But I think that you make a good point as well with Ty Lue. There was nothing particularly new about what they were doing as a team, and I believe they actually had a worse record under Ty Lue in the regular season than they did under Blatt, but what was very clear is that Ty Lue wasn't afraid to sort of challenge LeBron, and you saw seeds of LeBron's revival in the end of the regular season. I think he closed the season really strong, and then it almost felt like he just had a second-gear maybe from the rest that he took during the year that he wasn't so thrilled about, maybe because his jumper started to kind of come back in the finals, maybe because, and this is sort of my theory, at least in the finals, is that he was he finally took on that dream on green matchup on defense and just committed to really doing it all. And I think for two games he was a little reluctant. And then when he once he did that, they won four or five, and he became that all-around force. Whatever it was, there must there was something in that coaching change that made a difference there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I mean, I think even Lou dates back to LeBron when he was younger. I think they met at some point when LeBron was either in high school or early in his NBA career, and he bonded with Ty Lue. Um, and he, like, Ty Lue was a friend of his. It's not like they're, I mean, he's maybe as tight with Ty Lue as he is a James Jones or he is a Maverick Carter or someone, but him and Ty Lue knew each other before this. Like, they, LeBron knew him, trusted him. Um, and I think to get, for LeBron to buy into what someone else wants him to do, he absolutely has to trust them to the utmost degree. It has to be someone that he knows that has been there for him, that knows kind of how he thinks and has developed enough trust from LeBron to actually be able to call him out on stuff. I So much of what Ty Lu got out of that team, I can, can not envision a such scenario, a realistic one, where David Blatt got that out of them. I just, I just can't. Certainly in the playoffs, but of course there's still – you know, a couple possessions away from losing that game seven uh, after all that. Uh, but it was still a surprise. It felt like the Warriors ran out of answers after about game and game six and even in game seven. What do you think the Cavs were doing in the finals to frustrate them? You know, obviously this has been dissected to death a little bit, but I'm curious from your vantage point, like what you think the biggest keys were to that series, that series from sort of a more diagram X's and O's perspective. 
Well, I think the first thing, obviously, is LeBron, like you said, the two-way force thing. I think him being able to disrupt Draymond uh, and to really be able to make an impact in that way, I think, mattered. Um, you could have put him on a couple different guys, and it'd be a reasonable thing to do. But putting him on Draymond is something that no other guy in the Cavs could really defend. And I, th- and I think the other thing that is that stands out to me in my head when I think about the finals, um, they hunted down Steph Curry in the pick and roll. And I think that's just a, th- a thing a lot of teams are going to try to emulate this year. Now, obviously, we don't think Curry was at 100%. Um, he, you know, he had that injury that I think had been reported and he didn't really admit to, but I think he was hurt. But every, literally every time they could, uh, LeBron was screening for Kyrie or Kyrie was screening and they were getting Curry in a situation where he had to, to switch or LeBron was going to get a free run of the basket. Um, and I think doing that really is the best was the best way to attack the Warriors defense that didn't have a lot of holes otherwise. Um, as much as LeBron can score one-on-one against Draymond Green or against Andre Iguodala, that is not the most efficient way to attack that defense. Getting him one-on-one with Curry is a clear mismatch because Curry either has to follow him, which is you if he gets in foul trouble, that's great because he's going to have to get off the floor. And if not, LeBron's going to pr- get a chance of getting easy buckets. Um, and I think the other thing, honestly, is Richard Jefferson kind of shockingly played such a big role. Uh, he was able to allow them to go small, he really unlocked LeBron playing kind of a hybrid 3-4. And those lineups just worked. I think those little twists uh, and that, that weren't really there in the regular season. Because Richard Jefferson was not really a factor in the regular season in a meaningful way. And they weren't doing anything with Kyrie and LeBron pick and rolls as much until the finals. They didn't do any of this until they really had to. Yeah, th- those are all really good points. And also Tristan Thompson, who I'm sure I don't need to tell you how valuable he is in, th- in ways that you don't necessarily see, setting great screens, doing his thing. So all that is definitely true. So they win the title, uh, and it's always a bit of a challenge what to do with the team after you win a title, especially when you're paying so much money in luxury tax payments. So the Cavs mostly have the same team back. They did not we signed Matthew Delvadova or Timothy Mozgov. They both got big contracts. They traded for Mike Dunleavy, but otherwise didn't really do much, although there's some talk now that they're going to look for a backup point guard to replace Delhi. Uh, do these moves make sense? Would you have matched on Delhi given the backup point guard hole? I think it's hard to say if they if I would have just because they were able to trade Dunleavy or trade Delhi to the Bucks and then use that trade exception to get Dunleavy without giving up their other trade exceptions. So I think I think it's kind of complicated. That said, though, I do think they really are going to miss Delhi because he wasn't a traditional, uh, you know, Darren Collison type backup point guard that's going to come in and run the offense. He came in, he was playing with LeBron on bench units, and he's basically functioning as a two guard. He was hitting threes, he was defending other point guards at an extreme level, and just doing what he needed to do as a ball handler. Um, and I don't think that guy really exists on the roster right now. So that makes me maybe think they should have. But what he got would have been a lot. You would have committed a lot of money to him and JR this summer. Um, I don't think the Mozgov thing matters too much because I think Thompson will be fine. And I think they they do, they do did get a, another wing in Dunleavy, which is good. Um, I'm not particularly worried about the backup point, backup point guard spot just because I think when it matters, LeBron is the backup point guard. LeBron is going to be the distributor. He's going to run things with bench units. Um, and if you can get something out of a K Felder, if you can get something out of a Jordan McRae, you get something out of uh, even in Amon Shumpert. I think there. I don't know if you saw that come news come out, but he wants to be a point guard, which is yeah. all kinds of scary because he can't dribble really. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of important um, for a point guard, but he did it in college somehow. Yeah, in his first year with the Knicks, it's and that to me. I think they're going to try that, uh, and I think they at least should try that just because. Um, Going out and getting another point guard would cost them some money. I don't think they really should try to spend right now, especially if Felder can turn into something. Uh, but Delhi, crazily enough, is going to be such a loss, and I think we're maybe not going to see it right away. But I think once, if they don't find a point guard, that's going to be a hole, um, and that's maybe the biggest hole I see in the rotation right now, to be quite honest. Yeah, I mean the challenge is that. Uh... Even if it's not a huge spot in the rotation, you know you don't want to tax LeBron too much during the regular season, so you need guys to kind of soak up minutes. And you also have broken up what it was a great lineup in the first three rounds of the playoffs, which was that bench unit of Delhi, Richard Jefferson, Fry, LeBron, and Shumpert kind of running those pick and rolls and using Fry on the backside. You miss that, but... It is not a huge problem, and I do think that at the end they will sign a vet at some point. Maybe now, maybe it'll mid in mid season they'll get it filled. But who is to, to all the listeners who maybe don't know? I mean, 
can Kay Felder and Jordan McRae do stuff? Like, who are these players, and what what should people be looking out for them? And what are your what are your thoughts on their chances of actually filling a rotation spot this early? I think they like both of them, um, maybe more than I do. And obviously, there David Griffin is a lot smarter than me when it comes to basketball. But you look at both of those guys, they're both younger. They both have clear flaws. Jordan McRae, they wanted to try him as a quasi-point guard, kind of like Delhi, uh, the, and they kind of abandoned that within two weeks of the preseason starting. Um, you saw Ty Lue be like, yeah, he's a two-guard. Um, and he, he's okay. He's not really fluid off the ball, which is sort of the problem. Because uh, when, when he's in summer league, he, if you go back and look at his summer league highlights, you're like, oh, this dude can get buckets. But he's not really playing the role he would with the Cavs. And David Griffin said this at Media Day. He's not really great as a catch-and-shoot player. He's really good with the ball in his hands and creating for himself. Um, I'm skeptical of him being a good rotation player, to be quite honest. I'm not sure he actually is that good. But they love him. They've had uh, Phil Handy spend a lot of time with him. He's also a guy who's worked with Kyrie. He's really tight with Kyrie and Shump. Um, And I think they do like him. And he's been mentioned as their one trade chip, quote-unquote. But I don't really see that either. Felder's kind of interesting to me because... He's clearly insanely athletic for his size. He can dunk. On, he's like 5'8 or 5'9. Um, he's very fast. He's, he makes really good reads for a young point guard, but he's short. Um, and, I, and a guy like I, and Isaiah Thomas gives you hope that a young point guard that is that small can become something, but he's definitely going to struggle on defense. He's not really a good shooter right now. And out of the back of point guard spot, I think you need a guy who's a shooter. I think at least one of them from the opening night is going to get a chance to be a rotation player. But also, I'm not sure with the title window not being particularly long, with uh, the urgency to win right now still being there, even if they win that title, you want to maximize LeBron's window. I'm not sure how long and how big of a leash you can give them for them to become rotation players. I don't think you can give them 60 games to figure it out. You might have to go get somebody. Um, and, and that carries its own set of problems, too. Right. And I agree with all that. Uh, the other thing that happened this summer for the Cavs that just got resolved was J.R. Smith's new contract, four years, $57 million, the uh, fourth year non-guaranteed. You know, that, that played out for quite a while. I think there's a sense from some people wondering, like, what's the point of kind of waiting so long, even though J.R. obviously has a checkered past. He's been a model citizen in Cleveland, huge contributor, great three-point shooter, I think Ty Lue said he was their best defender last year. I always thought that was a little much, but he certainly played much better defense. And LeBron at one point was saying, you know, why have we gotten this done? And this is sort of a pattern with Cleveland waiting. They they had the Tristan Thompson saga last year. They've had Both Rich saga. Paul guys. Both Rich Paul guys, absolutely. Uh, they had the uh, other sagas in the past, Sasha Pavlovich, Anderson Vergeau. Why – why wait this out with J.R. Smith? Do you think they handled that one right, or does it does it matter that he's only now coming into the fold, or is it really not that big of a deal? I'm not sure it's ideal that he just got signed because you want guys to be in there for all of training camp. But I for for comparison with the Thompson situation, I'm not sure it's as big of a deal as that because I think Thompson got signed the night before the regular season opener, and he was really bad for a couple of weeks. It was not in shape. Um, J.R. is going to take some time to get in shape. He didn't look particularly in shape when he played against the Wizards uh, he, in his debut. He looked okay. He was hitting his spots, but he didn't look quite like the bouncy athletic JR we saw in the playoffs in last year. Um, it's interesting because I, I understand both sides of that contract negotiation. For JR, you want to make as much money as you can on this deal. You need to make as much money as you can because this is definitely going to be his last bigger contract. Uh, he'll be At the end of this deal, he's going to be 34 there isn't a team that should pay him over $10 million when he's 34, most likely, depending on the CBA and everything, and if he actually declines. Right. Also, um, he started early, so yeah. he's an old 34 yeah. in NBA years. Yeah, he's, he's, got a lot of, he's got a lot of miles on him. And, and this deal uh, for he's him, added a lot more, I think, for some with his extracurricular activities, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, not even just the – even when he was in – like, he went to China during the lockout and was just eating room service all the time. Jared has yeah. not had the most, <laughs> like, clean NBA and clean professional career. Yeah. Um, but you look at it, and he's making on this contract, the guarantee is only $500,000 less than what he's made up to this point. So he got what he wanted out of it. For the Cavs, I understand trying to negotiate with him because, A, no other team realistically was going to sign him. I mean, you saw all the teams that had the cap room to get him the Sixers, the Nuggets. Uh, these are teams that don't need a guy like J.R. Smith. I mean, if the, let's say the Nuggets, let's just say hypothetically, this would probably uh, drive Adam Mars crazy if they did this. <laughs> it's our Nuggets blogger. Uh, 
he'd be taking away minutes from Gary Harris and Jamal Murray. If you're the Sixers, yeah, you want veteran guys, but is he going to take away minutes from someone you think maybe is actually going to be good, even if it's also, just... Also, I'm not saying uh, you want that guy. veteran guy. Uh, I mean, I would have been here for the JR and Joel Embiid, like, season-long bromance, but another alternate universe. But the Sixers, you know, it was weird because they were the team that came up as the, the team that he, you know, maybe was going to offer him a deal or something like that. Um, and I think that was just kind of them being like, okay, we're going to maybe get a little in with Rich Paul. That's kind of how I, I read those tea leaves. Um, I don't, and again, I don't think it's ideal that it went out this long, but for both sides, there was no, they both had leverage and then they both didn't. It was just kind of like, when are you going to do this? Um, and I'm not sure how much LeBron, and I'm sure LeBron had to be like, get this guy because it's A, it's someone he's close with. B, it's one of his uh, clutch sports guys and LeBron was working out with him all summer. And B, LeBron, I think, values how much you need to have guys in. And I think he knows that with JR, you need to have him around to really get the best out of him because he has been a model citizen Cleveland. Um, he has been a guy who's really bought in. But I think a lot of that is because LeBron has his back to this utmost degree. And the, there's a, so much in place with James Jones, with Lou, uh, with Dante Jones last year to really keep him in a good mental framework. Right, and from the Cavs' perspective, also his you have to pay triple on his contract because of the luxury tax. So, you know, it's easy to say, well, that's just Dan Gilbert's money, and he just made a ton of money from the title, and I that's kind of all right. But I can sort of see why maybe he was being a little frugal in that situation. the The good thing about it is, is that the deal I think does uh, there is only like a small guarantee in the last deal, so it's a little bit less per year, even though it's really like a three year commitment. There's just that small guarantee and guarantee in the end. And I'm pretty sure if the the sheets I've seen are correct, it goes down over the course of the three years that the, most of the money is guaranteed. So as Kyrie and LeBron and Kevin Love and Tristan have their deals go up, JR's at least goes a little bit down. So it's not as bad as the cap as the sheet goes forward. Okay, that makes sense. So, other than the backup point guard, is there any are there any rotation questions you have coming to this year with this team? Is there because it, it does feel like with the Cavs. They're the best team in the East, clearly, and there's sort of a narrative of inevitability to June when they'll probably be in the finals again. I mean, are there any other sort of storylines to watch that, uh, from the kind of the nitty gritty perspective, that re- people should care about, even though they kind of know that they're probably going to be there at the end? Yeah, I, I think the wing situation, aside from LeBron and Jr., is really interesting. Um, we've talked about Shumpert a little bit, but he's a guy I'm not sure is that good. I mean, I don't know, really know what your take on him is, and I would love to hear it, but he was not good last year. He was under 30% from three, and he was hurt, but they need him to be really good. I actually think he might be the most important player on the bench because he's going to have to defend multiple positions, probably play multiple positions, and kind of be their first wing off the bench. Then you have Richard Jefferson and Mike Dunleavy, who both uh, have good skill sets, both can uh, play these certain roles and fill these certain niches. But Jefferson's older. Dunleavy has a really bad back and is older. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that both just kind of end up not being good this year and both kind of fail out. And I think you need at least two of those three guys, and ideally all three, to make the kind of run that you expect them to. Because uh, I don't think it's 100% guarantee that you're getting the best version of all three of those guys in this year. And then you think about the front court. You have Love and Thompson eating up most of the minutes, and Channing Fry should be fine. But if you need a rim protector... Is Birdman really that guy? Would you be, have been better off trying out like a Larry Sanders or something like that? I think that's worth watching too. Well, there's still time they could sign someone. Uh, you mentioned Kevin Love. It's a good time as ever to go to him. You know, the great stop he had on Steph Curry at the end of Game 7 sort of saved his reputation a little bit uh, because obviously it helped them win. But also, even before that, there were all these noises about, does he really fit in with this team? Are they going to try to trade him? You know, even though I think he played better under Ty Lue, those questions are going to persist as long as you have the mix that you have and Love has the limitations that he has. But at this point, are you feeling pretty good that Kevin Love can continue to work to fit in or if things start to go south again do you think the Cavs will look to try to explore the market on him I don't think you could ever count 100% count out the fact that they could move him um, and I would I don't really know what his trade value would be at this point it'd be really interesting to see what kind of return they would get on him and who they, what kind of players they would target um, but I do think he there is an effort to being made to get him to be a little bit happier and he seems happier um, and I think I think of last year, there was a game in Sacramento where he hit a go-ahead three or something like that, and he was walking off the court because the Kings called a timeout. And Jr. and Kyrie are doing the guitar celebration. 
Yuck ended up having fun. And Kevin Love is walking off the court and just looks miserable. You know, he, <laughs> he, he had like that David Foster Wallace thing going on last year where he looked all shaggy all the time. Yeah, And he yeah. just looks miserable <laughs> coming off the court. Um, and I'm just like, I just felt so bad for him because he just looked kind of sad. Um, and then you look at, you know, in the finals or in the playoffs, there's a thing where it looked like LeBron was yelling at him after he was trying to get a high five. And he just had a rough time. He wins the finals. He shows up to the parade clean cut. Uh, with the two championship belts, and is just kind of in, is kind of enjoying himself. And you look in the preseason; he looks like he's actually really happy. He looks like a guy who f- is just feeling more comfortable. I mean, he's really tight with James Jones. I feel like him and LeBron's relationship has to be better at this point. But if let's say it does go south, he'd be the guy you would have to deal, right? I mean, I'll ask you this: if if you have to make a move and things go, let's say, the worst possible scenario. And he's just getting, you know, picked apart, and they can't defend certain lineups because he's playing. I mean, he'd he'd be the guy you'd have to try to move out of out of their relative core, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think you would have to think about it, and I think they would have thought about it probably uh, if they didn't win the title. It's weird how like a couple baskets changes an entire person's reputation. All the problems that resulted, maybe the personality conflicts are sort of solved, but. It only takes a you know a bad stretch for some of those things to come back, and then what's really not solvable, kind of there, to solve is that he still has the same problems you know with defensively, with his touches. There's still all those same fundamental questions of how do you fit in a player like him with the rest of the roster, and can you play? I mean, it's going to be even harder to play him against the Warriors this year than it was last year, you know, now that they have Durant as well. it's There's very few places where he can hide, you know, especially it, there's really – I don't know how you kind of compensate for him in that series. And so this is always going to be an issue. My suspicion, though, is that they are not going to trade him because ultimately at the end of the day – what you get in a package for him is kind of three quarters on the dollar, just in terms of, you know, I don't think the Cavs, especially in a playoff series, are going to be any more successful with kind of three good players than with Kevin Love or three sort of other players. You know, I think that ultimately they're going to keep him, they're going to do the best they can and ride it out. But it is certainly something to watch as the season goes on. Yeah, I think if you were to get the right kind of stretchy, like stretchy, swingy players, like a, a couple wings that would you could maybe do that, but how many of those guys actually exist? Right, and how many of those teams that are trying to trade him want to trade them him? You know, and like at this point, I think it's hard to see. There's just a lot of big teams that have surplus bigs, and not a lot of teams that have the kind of ideal player that you'd want. And I still think that, especially during a regular season, I also think that they need Kevin Love's scoring to kind of hold them down on second units. You know, they, they kind of need him to soak up minutes. And, you know, it, they're if they have to bench him in the finals a little bit because of the matchup, then they have to bench him in the finals because of the matchup. You know, they have some other options, especially if Dunleavy can stay healthy. So, yeah, I, I think it's sort of the same problem. It hasn't gone away, but I, I don't think we're – really any closer to there being any sort of need to trade him than there was before. I think it was sort of same situation as is. The other player whose reputation I think really took a, a big jump after the finals is Kyrie Irving. And suddenly we're not talking about some of the defensive problems that he may have or whether he passes the ball too much. Now we're kind of looking at him in a totally different light. And so I pose this question to you. Were we always wrong about Kyrie Irving or are we now sort of overcompensating and neglecting some of the things he doesn't do well that could hurt the team? I think it's both, um, which is like a not answer, I guess. But last year in the regular season, I, he was really coming back from an injury and I don't think he was actually right until close to the playoffs. Um, like I think that knee injury suffered in the finals. Yeah, he was not Ky- the Kyrie Irving that was dropping, you know, fifty-five points or whatever against the Spurs and was just an electric player. He looked like seventy-five percent of himself that whole time. Uh, that being said, he, there are issues with him as a as a player. Um, you know, he's not perfect at this point, but he's a little bit younger, and you know, it's fine. But he's not a good. Def- he's not particularly a good defender. Um, him and Lillard are both these guys that can just get buckets, but they they struggle on defense. He, he used to die on pick and rolls all the time, he like literally a guy does. with screen. Yeah, yeah. But then you think, but then it's like you look at the finals. He wasn't great the whole time, but there's at least that effort there where it's like, I don't expect him to maybe ever be as good as a Steph Curry, and I don't know exactly what his how good he ends up being. But Curry sets this example for me where he tries on defense. 
he is never going to be a great defender. But he's at least going to put in effort and make guys work for stuff, and Kyrie can do that. Um, because I think there's he's clearly just a wizard on offense. Like, he... Gets in, he can score from anywhere. He's, he's got, I think he has the best handles in the league. And if you need, he could run a really good offense, I think, if he had the right supporting cast. But then you look at the defensive side, teams can hunt him down. And if he's on the floor with Kevin Love, the Warriors could run a Curry Draymond pick and roll or a, or a Curry Durant pick and roll and just like hunt that duo down. And that's an issue too. Um, but I, as someone who's watched him grow up from the from playing under Mike Brown and playing with Deion Waiters and playing with Earl Clark as a small forward and just oh, all these yeah. really ter- these terrible things, I give him kind of a break because he has never been until the last two years. And even then, it's it's LeBron, so it's not necessarily always necessarily these easy transitions, even if it should be. He's never played in these optimal situations. And then when it was time for him to, for maybe to be an optimal offense last year, and then when he gets Ty Lue to be really his coach and his mentor, he's coming back from an injury. I really think this could be a huge breakout year for Kyrie. The injury thing is a good point. Also, uh, it's crazy that it was only three years ago that Earl Clark was the opening day starting small forward. Don't remind me. <laughs> I mean, I, I just just you you put that name out there, and I just totally forgot that that happened. The the pre LeBron Cavs rosters, if you just go back and look at them, have some of the most hilarious. Uh, random things that work. I mean, Luke. There was a year Luke Walton was just killing it as a small ball four passer. I remember Luke Walton and Sean Livingston. Yeah, uh, they got Spencer Hawes in a trade once, and it like revolutionized their pick and roll offense. And I was like, pay. I was really like, pay Spencer Hawes like actual money because he actually makes like pick and rolls work on this team. It was sad times. That was the summer that LeBron actually came back, so I do yeah. remember that. Uh, but as far as Kyrie goes, I think you're right that he will play better uh, because he was not than he did in the regular season, at least because of the knee injury. I do think the defense is a problem, and, and where I'll I'll slightly disagree on Curry is I actually think Curry has a pretty good frame and length. Uh, generally, uh, as a defender, and it's not just an effort thing. I think he just kind of—he's a bit taller, he's a bit longer. Yeah, that's fair. That's always going to be a problem with Kyrie. The one thing that I think is always underrated about Kyrie, and and it's underrated by people like me as well, is that when you can kind of just get buckets, two things happen. One is you can kind of carry your team for a four or five minute stretch, and that is the kind of stuff that turns what's like a five point game into a fifteen point game with the snap of a finger, and that's demoralizing for a in the regular season you see it happen so many times where he'd just go on this flurry and it would just break a team in the regular season the other is that because he's such a great offensive player and he really is a great offensive player he wears out the other team's point guard as well and I think that's another thing that happened with Steph Curry is that it's not just that he was banged up and he was banged up but it's also that he has to guard Kyrie Irving a lot and they not only those switches were not only to try to get Steph to guard LeBron they were to try to make get Klay Thompson off Kyrie and make Steph guard Kyrie and that's that can wear you out over the course of a game but at the same time his defensive deficiencies are never going away and they are there as much as Cavs fans want to sort of think that we harp on them too much they're there and there's no backup to sort of play the pestering point guard role that like Delhi did last year so it's going to be interesting to see how that that uh, that works yeah I, I think that's pretty fair and I think that's maybe where you miss Delhi the most is being him being able to come in and he's not going to be a stopper per se but he's going to come in and he's going to be really annoying um I mean that's what he's he did his whole time in Cleveland and there, there's literally stories you can go back and find of when Kyrie and Delhi were just starting out in the league roughly at the same time Delhi was like almost fighting him in practice and like pushing him um, and just really like making Kyrie work, and I think he needs that sometimes. And, and but I think you're right though. The scoring thing, he may, it makes him I th- one of the best point guards in the league. And I don't necessarily think he's in that upper echelon of Curry, CP3, and Westbrook. And I, I don't think he's there. But I think if you, I really think if you threw him in a hat, and it was him, Wall, Lowry, and Lillard, and like a Mike Conley type. All those guys are all really good. They all have sort of their own kinks and their issues. I think you pick any one of them out, and I think you make a really good argument that they're that next guy. Well, I appreciate knowing your audience and saying not saying that Kyrie is for sure better than John Wall, like some people on your site. That's very nice of you, uh, <laughs> knowing knowing your host. Uh, well, that leads us to LeBron. You know, as as Tom Ziller wrote in our NBA preview that came out. You know, ne- LeBron never ceases to amaze you. He, the uh, his legacy, his cake is baked, and we just got icing left. And I'm sure I'm butchering what was a beautiful line that he had. I'm sorry, <laughs> Tom. But um, what what is left for him? Because he is 
obviously played so many minutes, and he's got that title back to Cleveland. You know, it said he says that there are things that still motivate him, but is he what is he going to take a different step in the stage of his career? Is he going to occupy a different role, or do you kind of expect LeBron to still be the kind of player he was in the finals again? I don't know if you can expect him to be that player in the finals for a whole year. Um, I think that would be asking just so much of him, and I think he'd wear himself out. I think if LeBron has learned anything that I think every star player is going to have to learn is that you can't go all out 82 games. You have to kind of be careful with your energy, especially as you get older. Um, and I, like, I think the Warriors probably learned that in the finals, um, that you can't, and over the trying to win 73 games. That being said, I, I it seems like the Cavs season to me is going to be at least somewhat defined by what kind of LeBron we see. I still think he's the best player in the world. Um, I still think when he engages himself again in the finals, there's no one like him. There's no one that can impact the game like him. But if you see that for, let's say, half the regular season, you know, I, I could see a scenario where they just, like last year, they only win the East by one or two games. That's reasonable. And LeBron in that situation is probably not near the MVP discussion. But if he decides, okay, part of my legacy this year is going to be A, proving that we're really good, but B, proving that I am still that guy um, beyond the finals, that that wasn't just a finals thing. And he goes for an MVP award in a year that I think, I mean, he is the betting favorite um, for whatever reasons, you know, Vegas has. But if he decides that he wants to win the MVP and he decides he wants to be that guy, I don't know if I would bet against him, right? I mean, it's just at some point he will decline because everybody declines, but I don't think it's yet. Um, but I think really it all depends on what LeBron wants. Is it, does he want to win the MVP? Does he want to contend for 60 wins or does he want to just get to the playoffs with the most energy possible, then ratchet it up round by round in anticipation of playing the Warriors again? I thought he was moving to a different phase of his career. He was declining earlier in the playoffs. And as I'm sure Cavs fans have thrown back in my face, I believe I wrote after game two that the Warriors were sort of exposing the 5% drop that he was showing, and that was a difference. Uh, But, of course, instead, he's found a second life. He was reinvigorated, and he totally dominated that series, and he's reset our expectations. He's now played 38,478 regular season minutes. He has also played, uh, as my computer scrolls down for me to actually get this, 8,383 playoff minutes, and you toss in all the Team USA trips. So, it is totally unprecedented for a player to be playing at this level with that many minutes on his belt. Even Michael Jordan, who may have been older as a player, has not played with that many minutes over on his belt. So I can understand maybe he's totally reinvigorated by chasing Durant, and there is sort of a mental kind of a mental edge he has on Durant that has manifested itself in one finals and all the head-to-head matchups. But if he tries to gun for that MVP, I. I would think he's kind of he'd be out of breath by the end. Jordan has played played forty one thousand minutes in the regular season, and he played just to give you some context. He played another uh, seven thousand four hundred seventy four minutes in the playoffs. So LeBron's going to pass him this year, and of yeah. course, Jordan had the two years off as well. Uh, LeBron's been in the league for a long time, so I think if he goes for the MVP. I'm worried that he may not have anything left. I know we can't doubt the guy anymore, but I think it would probably be most prudent if he is at the point where he's done winning MVPs. He takes more games off. kind of With Kyrie healthier, I think maybe they, there's a luxury for him to do that. Of course, they have to worry about Kyrie's injury history as well. But it's I think at this stage of his career, he'd be smart not to go full throttle and concede the MVP. But maybe he won't do that. It'll be interesting to see. I think that's where I stand on this, too. Um, I, if I was Tyron Lue, I would play him on as few back-to-backs as possible. Like, if I'm looking at the schedule, they play the Warriors on Christmas Day. They're playing the Pistons the next night, and the Pistons are a tough, younger team in the East. LeBron can just take the night off. Like, he doesn't even need to travel to that game. He can just chill, take a sabbatical, and relax. Um, and, I, and I think the Kyrie thing is important, too. And I also think it's maybe this is a way to get Kevin Love more touches that are what we saw with him in Minnesota. When they've gone to him in the post and on the elbow the last two years, it has never felt organic to me. It has never felt like they were actually earnestly trying to make it a part of their offense. It seems like, okay, we have to get Kevin X amount of touches, and then we're going to move on and do our Kyrie, LeBron, pick and roll in isolation thing. Um, I think 
LeBron resting would certainly help them in the playoffs. It certainly gives him the type of energy he would need in theory because when they play the Warriors, he's going to have to be that player he was last year during the end of the finals. Because it, And this is oversimplifying it, but if the Warriors last year were that good and won that many games and you're replacing Harrison Barnes with Kevin Durant, like that just complicates things. And if LeBron bears so much of the burden of handling that, um, because he's LeBron James, and he's because he's going to have to. He's either going to have to defend Durant, or he's going to have to hope uh, him being on uh, Draymond Green can enable someone else to be passable on Durant. And he, he's going to have to be all out in the final for him to have, think I have a chance of winning. Um, and that's you know doubting him a little bit, and we learn we shouldn't do that. But I think that's fair. I don't th- think the regular season. I mean, if he wins an MVP, does it actually change what, how we think of him? If he wins another one. I don't know. I mean, it, I guess a little bit, but I think Tom is right. Like we kind of know his legacy is secure now and everything else is just kind of bonus. So, but maybe it would be quite amazing if at this age with this many minutes, he did it again. Uh, I just don't want him to just kind of prolong his cut short his career, or his, his playoff run, because I think they're going to need that injury at the end. Motivation is sort of an interesting question for the Cavs in general this year. You know, the East some teams made improvements, but I think it's fair to say that even if Cleveland enters the playoffs not as a number one seed, they really have nobody to fear in the East. Uh, so how do how do you stay motivated throughout the year? And that that's the big question I sort of have with this team. When you can kind of walk into the finals, and maybe you know, nothing is a walk-walk, and maybe Boston will make a big trade and emerge as a real threat against them and not just kind of this cute little team that they've been, what can you do to prevent sort of complacency sinking in? That's what I'm very curious about because you saw in Miami in their last year a little bit of that where they felt like they were kind of bulletproof. There was nobody that could really challenge them. Even the Pacers had kind of fallen off, or I guess they fell off that by the end of that year. And they sort of weren't the same. They didn't have the same juice, and that cost them in the finals. Like, how do the Cavs avoid that problem? It's funny because maybe it is – Maybe maybe the way to best motivate them is LeBron playing at that, trying to play at that high level and setting the tone for the intensity. Uh, and we you know, we just talked about how that carries a lot of issues, and then maybe that's probably not the ideal approach, but maybe maybe that's it. The other thing I think, um, Tyron Lue does really connect with this team in a way that I don't think, again, Blatt ever did. Um, and maybe he can tell Kyrie, okay, Kyrie, that LeBron's going to take a backseat right now. We're going to rest him. We know what the postseason means. Maybe you put the pressure on Kyrie and Love to really lead the team in the regular season to help them play at that high level and say, "Look, we know you're. We know this is LeBron's team, but they all, you guys are also our stars. You can maybe lean on them to get there, um, and maybe maybe that's how you do it. Otherwise, I'm not really sure to be honest because I don't think they really think anyone in the East is on their level. Um, I think we saw that in the playoffs. I mean, nor should they. I, I mean, no. I mean, I don't think they should. I think there are good teams in the East, but is there a team that if you had to if I, that I would feel comfortable picking over the Cavs today? No. I, in, in 10 out of 10 series, I'm picking the Cavs to win and win pretty easily. And and I think that plays through. But I think they do know that there is a really big challenge waiting for them in the finals, at least in what we expect to be in the finals. And I think I never undervalue how LeBron James plays these mental games to get himself motivated. And we may not see it in November. We may not see it until March or something like that. But... At the end of the day, I do have just kind of a faith in him to know that that big challenge is coming uh, and that they do have a championship to defend because he rises to those challenges. And it may be the best thing in terms of uh, sparking LeBron's competitiveness this year was Durant really upping that ante uh, and going there. I mean, it's not it makes it a lot harder because he's Kevin freaking Durant, but maybe that pushes LeBron in a way we haven't seen I think that's a fair theory, and I look forward to seeing if it's true. Do you think they will repeat? I'm putting you on the spot. I have to say no. Um, I oh, think no. there's a hard feather in Cavs fans. I know Ryan Morton's gonna like come at me like real fast, but I mean, you think I look at this? I think this is maybe you could argue this is the best roster they have. Um, you could argue that that they've had since LeBron came back in terms of having enough guys. But you look at that Warriors team, and I thought, and we thought this last year too. So take it with a grain of salt, but. They just present so many problems for the Cavs that I don't know how they answer them. And so much had to break right for them to win last year. Uh, 
Not at hundred percent. LeBron playing the way he did. Draymond getting Draymond getting suspended is just is one of the, probably the five biggest reasons they won the finals. I mean, that was just, just such a big moment. Um, and I'm not going to say it's impossible. Um, and and the NBA GMs, like thirty percent of them, think the Cavs are going to win again. But if you had to, if I had to pick today, I'm probably picking. I ha, I am picking Golden State. I I would too. Never doubt LeBron. Obviously, he has amazed us in ways that. Uh, We've always we cannot believe, but I would think vote vote Golden State, and we'll go from there. But uh, anyway, Chris Manning, anything else that uh, you think Casimirs need to know before the season starts? I would just tell everyone to be patient with the quality of basketball. Um, I think it's going to be a little uh, wonky to start the year. I mean, I think opening night's going to be such an emotional night uh, because of the ring ceremony, because there's going to be a World Series game like ten minutes away or like a 10-minute walk away from Quicken Arena. It might oh, not even be right. a 10-minute yeah, walk. Yeah, that's right. Like, Tuesday is going to be one of these nights um, that I think they're – I mean, the, the Indians last – or the Cavs were at this bar in Cleveland that's kind of like a, a like a, like a hipster kind of bar. Uh, and, like, JR and LeBron and other guys on the team are just watching the Indians game amongst a bunch of fans at this bar. Um, like, they're buying into this too. And I think that night's going to be very emotional – um, I think it'll be cool kind of for LeBron to – he's playing Carmelo, one of his best friends, and I think that's going to be kind of interesting. But I, if you're a Cavs fan out there, don't be too worried if they don't look great for the first two months. Um, they're not going to be particularly sharp. I think you saw in the preseason, except for when LeBron was kind of putting on a show for the Columbus fans, they were not exactly taking everything seriously. They were playing kind of sloppy. Um, and it's going to take some time to get into things. And I, I get, don't be surprised if they do make some kind of move just because – if David Griffin uh, is good at one thing, it's he's good at leveraging these situations. If they need a piece, he's probably going to find a way to get it. Um, and, and they have those trade exceptions. They're, they would cost them money to use them. But I, w- I wouldn't expect this roster to necessarily be the same in four months either. That's a good point. He got JR and Shumpert uh, two years ago. He got Channing Fry last year, both very important moves. So it's a really good point at the end. I, I would think that they're going to make a move uh, if there really is a problem. But anyway, Chris Manning. From the Locked On Cavs podcast and Fear the Sword. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Uh, This is a lot of fun. So, we only have one more of these left, and that is with the Warriors. And if you're a Cavs fan and you're upset that we're doing the Cavs first and the Warriors next, let me tell you, it was a scheduling reason. It was not deliberate. We had we didn't look at this and say, oh, we definitely have to do the Warriors last. It really was just a matter of when everyone was available. But anyway, this is number 29 to 30. You can find the other team previews in the limited upside section on SBNation.com. You can find us on iTunes. And do check out the SB Nation NBA preview now live with some really cool stuff, including Tom's aforementioned essay on LeBron James, my video on why the Warriors are going to be even more impossible to stop with Kevin Durant, Paul Flannery's piece on the Minnesota Timberwolves, uh, John Gonzalez on the Los Angeles Clippers, and Tim Cato on what Russell Westbrook means to Oklahoma City. So a lot of great stuff. Chris Manning, thank you so much for joining us. This has been the Limited Upside Podcast. Podcast.